Welcome to the podcast of the First Baptist Church of Dumas, Texas, featuring biblical teaching and preaching from God's inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word. If you live in the Panhandle area and are looking for a church home, we'd love to see you at First Baptist Church. We meet every Lord's Day for Sunday school at 9 a.m. and morning worship at 10.30 a.m. We also have midweek discipleship opportunities for all ages on Wednesdays. For more information, visit us at fbcdumastx.com. That's fbcdumastx.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Now open your Bible as we explore God's Word together. Amen. You can open in your Bibles today to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 16. Gospel of Matthew 16 will be there in just a moment. We've sang the glorious truths all morning about the church, the church's foundation in Jesus Christ, who we are as a church. We've confessed our faith, what we believe about the church, and who, what the church is. But maybe you still have that question today. You say, well, this is the church. I came to church. We are doing church now. We are having church There's so many uses of the word and so many ways Christians have used the word that we might be left with that question. What do we mean by the word church? What is the church? We say we believe in the church, but what do we mean? Are we talking about primarily an institution, an organization, a denomination? Are we talking about a building, this building even? A religious group of some sort with creeds and confessions. That that is the church. Well, there are various denominations in the church, and different denominations have different views on what the church is. I was talking to our new members class this morning. If you go to a Methodist church, you belong to the Methodist church, the one Methodist church that encompasses all the smaller Methodist churches. If you go to a Roman Catholic church, There is the Roman Catholic Church over which the Pope is the head. So to belong to St. Peter and Paul down here on Maddox is to belong to not just that church, but the Roman Catholic Church. Same is true for the Presbyterian Church. So what about a Southern Baptist Church? And notice the switch I said there, not the Southern Baptist Church, but a Southern Baptist Church. Our statement of faith begins with that very language, not the New Testament Church or the singular church, but a New Testament church. There's no such thing technically as the Southern Baptist Church. There is the Southern Baptist Convention, which is a convention of local independent churches. So when people, you know, kindly tell me, well, I used to be Methodist, but I came to the Baptist Church. You might have come to this Baptist church, an a Baptist church, but we are an individual, local, autonomous, self-governed, self-governing, self-ruling local church. Now, that is not to say, as some Baptists have believed in the past, that is not to say that there is no universal or invisible church. We confessed that at the end of our statement today, didn't we? That the New Testament speaks of a universal church comprised of all believers of all times from every tribe and language and nation on the face of the earth. That is the universal, global, invisible, eternal church that belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ. Those gathered around his throne even right now. And those gathered in churches around the world right now, true believers in Christ, comprising the one true universal church. 
of which our local church is just one local visible manifestation. Still, what does the word church mean? We keep saying the word, what's that, Princess Bride? You keep using that word? I don't think you know what it means. What does the word church mean? Let's read the words of Jesus, this encounter with his disciples in Matthew chapter 16, starting in verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? They said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven." Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. We have a promise here that the church belongs to Jesus and that Jesus will build his church. There's a lot of disagreement in this passage over what Jesus means by the rock. And Peter's name means the rock. The Roman Catholic Church has historically taught that Apostle Peter was the first pope because of this verse. That the rock Jesus speaks of is the rock Peter, therefore he must be the head of the local or the, the visible earthly church, the first pope. Protestants, I think, went a little too far in rejecting that Peter was the rock Jesus was talking about. And lots of Protestant scholars and commentators have spilt a lot of ink trying to convince us that when Jesus says, you are Peter and on this rock I'll build my church, that he was not in fact talking about Peter. Some have gone so far as to even suggest how they know this, I don't know, that Jesus was somehow making a motion at himself. You are Peter. That's true, your name means rock. But on this rock, I will build my church. Some have said that Jesus means his confession, that Jesus Christ is Lord is the rock of the church. And all those might be very true. And those are foundations. And I was going to ease your conscience this morning, maybe, I might just upset you, that I don't think there's any problem in seeing Peter as the rock on whom the church is then built. I don't think it's any problem seeing the apostles as the ones to whom Jesus gave the keys to the kingdom here in this passage. Because when we turn the page into the book of Acts and we begin to see the church explode into the world, who is the one that leads the charge in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost? Peter, the rock. Who is the one that leads the Gentiles to salvation in Christ in Acts chapter 10 with Cornelius and his household? Peter, the rock. Every step of the way, God is using Peter in this special, privileged way to be the one with the message of Jesus through the ministry of the apostles to open up the doors of the kingdom of heaven and the church to the world. In fact, Paul uses this very language in Ephesians chapter 2 when he says that the church is built on the foundation of the prophets and the apostles. Now, when you look in the book of Revelation, the pillars of the New Jerusalem, what is inscribed on those pillars except the names of the 12 apostles? So I don't think there's any reason for us Protestants to to shy away from seeing Peter as the rock. But we see Jesus as the builder, Jesus as the head, 
Jesus as the one doing the building of his church. So what do we mean when we say the word church? Let's talk today about four things, identity, mission, membership, and service. Talk about the church in that framework. Number one, the church's identity. What did Jesus mean when he said, I will build my church? What do we mean when we say we are part of the church, or I love my church, or I'm going to church? Well, I hate to burst your bubble this morning, but church is kind of a made-up word. Because it's a made-up combination of two Greek words, kurios, which means Lord, and kyriakos, or I'm sorry, oikos, which means house. Think about oikos, think about the economy. We're talking about house things, house matters, business, economics, stuff like that. So when we combine kurios and oikos, we get this little Greek combination, kuriakos, which we've just said, all right, let's just take that and run with it. It combines to mean the Lord's house or the house of the Lord. And so historic Bible translators have just really stuck with that word, kuriakos. Now we've said it different ways. Uh, in old Germanic, and if you know German, forgive me, but I would say Kirsch or Kirsch. In old English, we have the word Kirche, which we see immediately how we come to the word church. But it still needs explaining, doesn't it? How do we have this combination of words that makes up this, and we just come to know what it means? Uh, John Wycliffe, in his 1385 edition of the New Testament in English, instead of going with the Latin ecclesium, we'll, we'll talk about that in a minute, he uses the word church. In other words, when he was translating that Latin word ecclesium or the Greek word ecclesia into English, he says, let's just go with what we've been calling it, the church, this made-up word, the Lord's house. William Tyndale, in his 1526 New Testament, translated the word ecclesia or the Latin ecclesium into what it literally means. So in his translation of the New Testament into English, he does not use the word church, but instead uses the word assembly or gathering, which is what ecclesia, Greek, and ecclesium in Latin means. Now everyone's favorite, the authorized 1611 King James Version of the Bible. For those that hold that this is the inspired and errant word of God, the King James Bible, it's interesting that we revert back to the word church which isn't actually the word at all. It's a made-up word that says the Lord's house, but it does not mean what the word actually means. It's that middle translation that actually nailed it. To actually take the word ecclesia in Greek, ecclesium in Latin, and translate it not to church, but to the assembly, a gathering of people. In fact, in the New Testament, that is the word for church. When you're reading your English Bibles and you see the word church, it's the word ecclesia, the called out ones, the assembly, the gathering together of God's people. It's also interesting that in the Old Testament, when you see the assembly, the gathering, the congregation of the saints, that Hebrew word kahal is the exact same word, assembly, gathering, a group of people, a congregation. So the biblical picture of the church is not a building or an institution or an organization or denomination or anything that we necessarily do, but the church is a people. The church is a gathering, an assembly, a congregation, organic, living, active of people. The church is the assembly of the Lord 
Jesus Christ. Not just bearing his name, although the church is of him and by him and from him. He is its builder. He is its designer. He is its founder. The church is from God. The church is from Jesus. The church, the assembly of God's people, does not have a human natural origin. We did not sit down and craft a constitution and a creative confession that made us the church. We were made the church by the calling of God, the indwelling and the falling of the Holy Spirit, and the baptizing of those believers on that first day of Pentecost 2,000 years ago. The church is not of human origins, but it is of supernatural, divine origins. And biblically, you know, theologically speaking, we, we talk about two means that the Lord uses to give birth to his church. Two means, the word and the spirit. The word and the spirit. When we talk about God using the word to give birth to his church, we're talking about the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. God calling sinners to repentance and faith in Jesus by the preaching of the word. In Romans chapter 10, you can turn there with me if you want. It will be on the screen. I'm going to turn there and read it to you. Romans chapter 10, starting in verse 14, we have this, this list from Paul. You'll be familiar with this. How then will they call on him whom they've not believed? And how are they to believe in him? of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. We should live good lives in front of people. Our lives are a witness. Our lives are a testimony. But our witness and our lives and our public testimony just by what we do are not enough to save anyone. We must then open our mouths and proclaim the good news, the gospel, the message. It is something that must be preached and heard to be believed so that people can call on Jesus and be saved. You cannot do enough nice things for people or live a good enough life so that you become the gospel to people. It's a popular thought these days, right? Preach the gospel and if necessary, use words. It is necessary to use words to preach the gospel. It is a message to be preached. Yes, we should live lives that draw people to it. We should be examples and testimonies and lights with our lives. But then we must tell them with the word of God what the gospel is. Because Paul says that is the power of God to salvation. The word of the gospel. So we use the word. God uses the word. And he uses the word by, number two, the power of the Holy Spirit. The spirit who takes the preaching of the word, who takes the message of the cross, and effectually calls sinners to repentance and faith by the word. Look over at 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 2 through 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 2 through 5. I'm going to turn there if I can get there. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, starting in verse 2. We give thanks to God always for you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, talking to the church at Thessalonica, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith, your labor of love, your steadfastness of hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now watch this in verse 4. 
For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. And and how does Paul so confidently say that he knows they were chosen? Verse 5, because our gospel, the preaching, the word, came to you not only in word, but also in the power and the Holy Spirit with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. So Paul says, we came and preached to you. but We didn't just preach the word to you, but it was accompanied by the power and the moving of the Holy Spirit. So that you responded in faith and repentance. We must have the preaching of the word. But we must have the preaching of the word accompanied by the power of the Holy Spirit. And as the Spirit moves through the preaching of the word... There we have the means and the field and the soil by which God plants the seed of the church. There is peace in this for me as your pastor. At a previous church I was at, I won't say the name of it, but as a previous church, I was sitting in a business meeting and we had a committee come up and they were going to give a report. And, we, and one, part of the report was to see uh, more people in the church. We wanted to grow discipleship programs and stuff. And the chairman of the committee in front of the church said about me, the pastor, if, and he was trying to be polite and happy about it. He was being friendly. He wasn't, being, he wasn't suggesting anything negative. But he said these words, if our pastor can fill the pews, if our pastor can fill the pews, and he meant it as a compliment, like you can do this, although I'm shaking my head like, no, I cannot do this. There is peace in this promise for me. Because there is a promise that God, through Christ, by his Holy Spirit, and by his word, will do his work, his way, and his time for his people. I am just a tool. I'm just an instrument. Don't quote that part. Zane is just an instrument, just a tool. Matt is just an instrument or tool. We're all just tools in the hands of God that he is using to build his church if we'll be faithful to preach his gospel by the power of his Holy Spirit. God called the people in the Old Testament. Exodus chapter 6, verse 7. He says about the Israelites, You will be my people, and I will be your God. You will be my assembly, my congregation, my people. And we come into the New Testament, we see similar language in Acts chapter 20, verse 28. As Paul was about to leave the Ephesians, he tells the elders, the pastors of the Ephesian church, To pay careful attention to the flock of God, the church for which Jesus paid his own precious blood. So as we talk about the means by which God builds his church, the word being preached, the spirit moving in power, we must not forget that one foundation that is laid that we sang about the foundation, and the high cost of the very blood of the Son of God. That is precious, that's costly, that's weighty. And I wonder this morning, do you think about the church in that way? Do you think about the church in light of the cost to Christ? When you say, I love my church, are you talking about the building? Our activities, our programs, what we've traditionally, historically been as the first Baptist church of Dumas, Texas, and praise God for that legacy. But is that where your mind goes first? Or do you think about these people? 
I love my church family. The ones you like, the ones you don't like, the ones who get on your nerves, the ones who get under your skin, the ones you can go out to have a bite to eat with, or the ones that you try to avoid on your way out of the church. Do you love them? And do you see them as the bride and body of Christ for which he shed his own precious blood? And if you would view the church that way, how would it change how you serve? How would it change how you love? How would it change your involvement? How would it change your priorities for your family? If this was the family of God purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ in your eyes, which it already is in reality. Next, let's talk about our mission. That's who we are, the church of the Lord Jesus, the assembly of Jesus Christ, built through his word and his spirit, based on his own precious blood, the family of God. Now what do we do? What are we supposed to do? Are we here to entertain saved people? A lot of churches think that's what the church is here to do. We're here to entertain saved people. So we do the music that the saved people in the congregation have always liked. We have the preaching that the saved people in the congregation want. We do the programs that the saved people for 60 years have always wanted and enjoyed in their church. Are we here to do that? On the other hand, are we here to entertain lost people? To do the music and songs that lost people might like when they come in. To preach sermons and messages that lost people may enjoy when they come in. Are we here to entertain any, anybody? Are we here to do nice things for people? Are we here primarily for community service? Now, our statement of mission as a church is to worship God, to nurture the believer, and to reach the world. That's our mission statement. But how do we do that? What have we been called to do in our nurturing and in our reaching? And I think we must look at those things in order. That's why they're in the order they are. We must start as people who worship God. There is no church if there are no worshipers of God. This is what I don't understand about some of the modern ideas of church planting. Uh, Not in Southern Baptist circles, I don't think, many. People go start a church and they say, we're going to start a church. So we take a handful of believers and we go to this place and start a church. And their primary motive from the very beginning is to attract lost people. And we want lost people to come to church. We want lost people to hear the gospel and be saved. But you need a fellowship of Bible-believing Christians who have placed their faith and trust in Jesus who are being equipped to go reach the lost. And so we kind of get the mission backwards sometimes. We are to be going people. Worshiping God is the first step to being a going people. We worship God. And as we worship, we are nurtured in our faith. You go to Sunday school, small groups. You come into a setting like this. We hear the word read. We hear it preached. We hear it taught. That's equipping you. Our primary task here as a church, a local church, is not necessarily only, listen, only to preach to lost people to be saved. That's a big part of what we do. But another big part of what we do is to equip you believers with the faith, with the gospel, with the scriptures, with doctrine, to be able then to do that last leg, worship God, nurture believers, 
to go reach the world. And Jesus has told us how to do it. Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 through 20. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you. And lo, I'm with you even unto the end of the world or the end of the age. What does Jesus tell us to do? Go, make disciples, baptize them, and teach them. This is the mission. And this is the how of the mission. As worshipers of God, worship God, as worshipers of God, being nurtured in faith ourselves, we can then take that truth into the world to reach the world and make more disciples. As we proclaim, proclaim what? The gospel. As we proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. I think so often we get this backwards. And we turn the church into sort of just a glorified weekly evangelistic crusade. And so the gathering of the church becomes not so much about equipping believers as trying to get unbelievers here to hear the gospel so they might be saved. Now there's nothing wrong with inviting lost people. We want to do that. We preach the gospel. People will be saved in our worship services. We pray for that. But our primary calling on Sunday morning is not an evangelistic crusade. It is the feeding of the people of God with the word of God to equip them to go reach the lost. This gathering of the church is a training ground. Not just a place where you bring the lost so they can hear me talk for an hour or less. It's a place for us to be equipped to go to them. The Great Commission does not begin with go tell people how great your church is and tell them to come on board. The Great Commission is for you to take the gospel to them. If you do our new members class, you have these two models that I put side by side. And model A is the church in the middle and all the arrows pointing to the church. And we get this so much in the modern church, don't we? Come to us. Come see what we're doing. Come see what we have to offer. We have great programs. We have great music. We have this. Come, 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 come. Now, we should be inviting people to church. I understand that. But the second model has the church in the middle with the arrows pointing out. And that is the biblical mission of the church, to train, to equip, to grow, and then to go to the nations. Nurture disciples to make more disciples as we proclaim and baptize and teach. Remember that as you preach, Romans 10, 14 through 17, Faith comes by hearing the word of God. We go, as Jesus said in Matthew chapter 9, verse 37, as laborers into his harvest. See, the harvest is ready, Jesus says. And then he pauses. Pray, therefore, that the Lord would send laborers into his harvest. And that should be our prayer, like the old gospel song, bringing in the sheaves, bringing in the sheaves. We shall come rejoicing, bringing in the sheaves. I, I used to think that was about heaven, we bringing our stuff to heaven, get our rewards or whatever. I, I think it's more about what goes on here on earth as we come into the Lord's house with people that we've witnessed to, people that we've shared the gospel with. And like a harvest, 
bringing them into the storehouse to be equipped and edified with their church family. So many churches and denominations and movements get bogged down trying to reinvent, reimagine, and rethink the church and rethink the mission and rethink the methods. And I think we just need to stop that. What we need is the mission of God. And what we need is the message of God. And what we need are the means of God. And it's all here for us. We know what the mission is. Go. We know what the message is. The gospel of Jesus. And we know what the means are. The proclamation of that message. We go, that's the mission, with the message of the gospel, that's the message, to proclaim it to the world, that's the means. The only question for us here this morning is not to reinvent or reimagine the mission, the method, and the, the mission, and the message, and the method, but the question for us is, are we faithful to that mission? Are you faithful to that mission? Are you faithful to that message are you faithful to reach the world? Because remember, we, we can put a banner up. We did put a banner up in our lobby that says who we want to be, faithful to the word, faithful to the gospel, faithful to the Great Commission. We can put a banner up. I preached a series on that last year. We can put it on our bulletins. It's there. That's who we want to be as a church. But we will not be that as a church until we are like that as believers. Are you faithful to the word? Are you faithful to the gospel? And are you faithful to the Great Commission to be disciple makers yourself? Think about what Jesus said in John chapter 10, verse 27. John chapter 10, verse 27. And he talks about the sheep and he's the good shepherd. But here's what he says. My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. How do the sheep hear the voice of Jesus? How do the sheep hear the voice of Jesus to know him and to follow him? Except through his disciples. And as you go into the world with the shepherd's message, you are the shepherd's voice in the world. And as you take that immense privilege and mission to go be the voice of the shepherd Jesus, you can rest assured that the Holy Spirit is doing his work. So that his sheep know him and know his voice and he will have his sheep and he will lose none of them. What great promise there is in that for you in your witnessing. They might not listen. They might not believe. They might never be converted. But you're still called to go tell them. And you're still called to trust in the power of the Holy Spirit to do the work of God in bringing his own people to salvation. You've been enlisted in this mission. Are you going? Are you obeying? Are you proclaiming? Let's talk next about membership. I have a Facebook. This is my first Facebook meme I've shown you. I'm a cool pastor now because I show you pictures. Don't, <laughs> don't re- respond. You may have shared this, you know. Don't you fret, Ruth. Church folks ain't God's folks. Church folks and God's folks ain't the same. Church folk, church folk go to church. God's folk are the church. And you look at that and if you scroll through Facebook, people share it. You say, hey, man, that sounds right. I think what you're being presented here is 
an understandable sentiment. I think what's trying to be communicated is going to church doesn't make you a Christian. I I think that's what's trying to be communicated. What is presented is a sort of false dichotomy. There's a false sense of having to make a decision here. As if going to church and being the church are two opposed things. That's the vibe I kind of get from when I see it. That this is probably someone, not that guy, he might not go to church. This is someone who doesn't go to church and who wants an excuse not to go to church. And so they say, well, going to church doesn't make you a Christian. We agree with that. Going to church does not make you a Christian. But when God saves you, he makes you part of something bigger than yourself. God saves you as an I. But he makes you part of a we. He saves you individually, personally, as you come to him in faith and repentance. But he incorporates you into his body, his family. There's the word, assembly. God saves you personally. But he makes you part of something bigger than yourself. There is no false decision to be made between going to church and being a Christian. Going to church does not make you a Christian. We agree. But when you're truly a Christian, you are part of the church. And it just makes sense that you'll want to be there and to hear the word and to be with God's people and to grow and to learn and to love together. Think about the birth of a baby. What would, it, what would it be if a babies were born and we just left them there in the hospital? And no one to care for them and no one to nurture them, no one to love them. That's not the way it works. Babies are born. They're born into families. And if their families aren't around, government helps us find families for them. They need care. They need nurture. They need love. The same is true of your second birth. The same is true when you're born again. You're not born again and just left to fend for yourself. You are born again and given a new family in Christ. It is an individual, personal experience of repentance and faith in Christ. No one else can do it for you. But when you are born again by the Holy Spirit, you are made by the Spirit part of the church where you can be nurtured and cared for and to grow. And it's mutual. When we do our agreement with members or in baptism, the new member makes a promise to you to love and to walk circumspectly in the world in our church covenant, to protect our church and its doctrines and its teaching and its mission. And then the church makes a promise to them to love them and support them and to help them grow in the faith. It's mutual. Acts 2.42. When I first came here a couple years ago, this is where I started. This, this word, this passage, that when these new believers were filled with the Holy Spirit, 3,000 people were saved in that one day and incorporated into whatever this thing was going to be. Here's what they did. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayers. You see that? Saved, filled with the Holy Spirit, baptized, and then they devoted themselves to one another, with one another. The individual believers devoting themselves with each other in togetherness, as they what? As they listened to the preaching of the word, as they gathered together to fellowship, to eat together. Maybe it means to celebrate the Lord's Supper together and to pray together. 
From the very beginning, the church has always been about being together. It's why we believe baptism is so central to who we are as a church. It's why when you come into our church, you see the pulpit front and center. The preaching of the word is central. Way up there, drawing your eye when you first come into the church, and that's on purpose, is the baptistry pool. Because in baptism, we have the open public declaration of faith that is to be professed before the body of Christ. And when I talk to our baptismal candidates here and we ask them the questions there, I'm asking them to make promises to you. To God, absolutely, and also to you. The last question we ask, do you promise to devote yourself to this church in love and service? They make promises to you. You make promises to them. Do you receive this person into membership? Do you vow to come alongside of them, to teach them, to pray for them, to help them grow? And you say, we do. The profession of the believer is, I have died with Christ and I've been raised to newness of life. And the joint profession of the church, when anyone is baptized, is, yes, we do too. We have died with Christ. We are raised with him and we are in this thing together. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13 We have all been baptized by one spirit into one body. And I don't know if that's talking about water baptism or the baptism of the spirit when you're saved and you come into the body of Christ. Either way, that picture points to that. That picture points to the spirit that baptizes you, not just in your own faith, but into the faith of the church. It's a central picture of what it means to be devoted to one another. That's why Paul in Ephesians chapter 4 verse 5 when he's talking about the unity of the church says it this way. There is one Lord, one faith, and one baptism. And what does Paul say the goal of that is in Ephesians 4 verse 16? That we are being formed into a whole body held together with every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly making the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one body. Listen this morning, this is why membership matters. This is why church hopping and church shopping is so detrimental to your faith. Unless false teaching is coming out of this pulpit, which you might think there is sometimes, I don't know. Unless false teaching is coming from here, or sin is just left dealt un, un, uh, left undealt with in the church. There's relatively listen. There's relatively few reasons biblically to leave a church. False teaching or open sin that's undealt with by the church. Relatively few biblical reasons to leave because this is the body of Christ, and your membership means something. You committed to us. We committed to you. Think about marriage vows. And um, some people do treat their marriage vows this way. But what if some people treated their marriage vows the way that many people treat joining a church? And at that first offense, or that first disagreement, or that first misunderstanding, I'm going to the other church down the road. I'm sure they believe the Bible. I'm sure they're preaching the same gospel. But do we treat our marriage vows that way? Should we treat any vows that way? Your membership matters. Your attendance matters. 
Your faithfulness in attendance matters. The apostle, I don't know who wrote it, the author of Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25, I don't want to anger anybody. The, the author of Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25 says that we should stir one another up to love and good works. And how are we to do that? Except that we do not neglect to meet together. We're supposed to stir each other up, push each other towards Jesus. And the only way we can do that is if we meet together. In the Lord's Supper, we have that ongoing sign of fellowship with Christ. Baptism is the front door. The Lord's Supper is that back door. This is how we guard the front door, making sure people have a credible profession of faith, a credible understanding of the gospel. They come into the membership of the church, and then the Lord's Supper is there as that fence, that time of fellowship with each other and with the Lord, a sign of our communion with each other and with Christ by his Holy Spirit. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 16 through 17, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many partake of one bread. You see that? We who are many come together to take one bread, one cup, and there's one participation with the Lord and with each other. Your membership matters. Your attendance matters. Lastly, the church's service. Within our unity and togetherness, there is diversity because our unity does not mean uniformity. Our unity does not mean uniformity. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 5, yes, there is one Lord, one faith, one baptism. But what does he say in verses 7 through 8? But grace was given to each one according to the measure of Christ's gift. Go to verse 8. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. And what is supposed to be the use of these various gifts? Paul says in verse 11, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers. You see that? One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one church, one body, many gifts, many callings, one purpose, but many different callings. Same thing is said in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 4 through 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 4 through 5. Now there are varieties of gifts but the same Spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds, verse 6, of workings, but the same God. And so we see unity in the diversity and diversity in the unity. One Lord, one Spirit, one God, many gifts, many callings, many workings, all for one goal that we read earlier in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 12 and 13, that we might be mature And grow up every way into Christ. And so any discussion about the so-called spiritual gifts must exist within the context of the local church. Any talk about the so-called spiritual gifts. Well, I don't go to church because I've got the gift of tongues. Does it make any sense? God gives you whatever gift he supposedly gave you for use in the church. I don't go to the church because I have the gift of prophecy. So I have the gift of prophecy. I don't need somebody to teach me. I don't need the word. I don't need the preaching. I got the Holy Spirit, me and Jesus. That's all I need. That's false. Because God gives that gift for the church. 
Whatever gifts he gives and whatever you believe about the spiritual gifts, God gives the gifts not just for you, but for the edification of his body in the congregation of the local church. One more verse to prove this to you, one more section. Romans chapter 12, Romans 12 verse 1, you know the first verse. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by the testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Some of your translations have what is your reasonable act of worship. Present your bodies to God. Live for him. Be transformed. That's your reasonable act of worship. But if you go down to verses 9 through the end of this chapter, what do we see? Except that this is in the context of the local church. You want to know how to give your life more fully to God? How to live as living sacrifices to him? How to be pleasing and acceptable and to offer reasonable worship to him? You want to know where to start? Go where Paul starts, the local church. Using your gifts and your callings, seeking your gifts. When's the last time any of us asked God, what is my spiritual gift? I'm not talking about your talents. I'm not talking about something that necessarily you've learned and trained in. What are your supernatural spiritual gifts that God has commanded you to use for his body? And here's how you can answer that question today. I've never asked for that. Start today. God, show me my spiritual gift so that I can serve you in the local church. This is a glorious endeavor that we've been called to. God has called us into this together. His body, his family, his household. He's called us into the harvest, as Jesus said, with an identity, a mission, seeing the importance of membership and service. And we have a promise that we gather and we worship and we pray and we serve until the day we see Jesus. Because one day, as we sang earlier, the church militant what we call the church militant, striving, fighting, suffering here on earth. One day the church militant will be the church triumphant, safe, at peace, and victorious because we will see at last the face of Jesus. And the promise of the song that we're about to sing, Christ will have the prize for which he died. And more importantly, maybe more glorious on our side, we will have the prize that we've longed for because we'll see our Savior face to face. We will see the face of our bridegroom as his beloved bride. And we say with the Spirit and the whole body of Christ from Revelation chapter 22, verse 17, the Spirit and the bride say, Come, and let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come, and let the one who desires to take of the water of life without price come. And then the, the book ends with this, even so, come, Lord Jesus. Let that be the cry of our church as we serve him, 
as we commit ourselves to each other, as we go on mission for him, as we understand our identity in him, let that be our cry. Even so, come Lord Jesus. Our God and our Father, we thank you for the gift of the local church, this local church. We thank you for the gifts and the callings that you've placed in this very gathering today. Maybe, maybe some that are even undiscovered. Gifts and callings, spiritual gifts that are, have been unasked for and unsought. Today I ask in, in this congregation that you would draw our attention to you. And in our desire to serve you, you would cause many of us, even right now, to ask, what have you called me to do? Help us to start with basics, attendance, membership, and help us to pursue you in your mission around the world. And right here in Dumas, as we ask you, what is our gift? What is our part in that? God, thank you for the church which you purchased for yourself through the precious blood of Christ. The church which you filled with your Holy Spirit. And help us now to devote ourselves to you in service and in love, renouncing the world, going on mission as the church militant until at last we are the church triumphant. Help us now by your Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about what it means to follow Jesus as Lord, you can email us at fbcdumas at hotmail.com. It's fbcdumas at hotmail.com. You can also reach us by phone at 806-935-5604. We'll see you next time.